This is a Handshake Agency podcast. Welcome back to another season of the Rewind podcast. I'm your host, Steve Bell. This time around, we're heading back 20 years to Melbourne in 2001, the same year and city we revisited just recently on the Avalanches Rewind. Only this time around, despite similar hardcore roots, the band struck out in a different direction and we're looking at their third album and not their debut. The band is much-loved Melbourne trio Something for Kate. The album is their equally adored third album, Echolalia, a confident and accomplished collection of literate, atmospheric indie rock, whose eventual success arrived only after the band and their team navigated some surprising twists and turns, and this is that story. You hold me in and you keep me a measure from impact. You stop and ask me if the First, some backstory. The genesis of Something for Kate extends directly back to high school, specifically Padua College down on the Mornington Peninsula, about 65 kilometres southeast of Melbourne along Port Phillip Bay. Back then, in the age before social media, kids with similar outsider music tastes tended to need to congregate together at school, if only so they had someone to share their passions with. Something for Kate drummer Clint Hindman recalls being drawn to his then schoolmate and future frontman, Paul Dempsey, via their shared music tastes, specifically US punk bands, even if the friendship took a little while to blossom. Yeah, so we went to school together down in Mornington um, at Padua and, um, yeah, we hit it off. The first year we didn't actually talk to each other that much. It was the second year I had, I think, every, apart from one class, I had every class with this with Paul and... There was a little common room that had um, a tape player down there that you could put on your own music. And he was the only one who was putting on music besides me and my mates. And it was the same sort of stuff, just sort of, that, you know, sort of punk rock. And then one day he came to school and I could see underneath his school shirt he had a Descendants T-shirt underneath his school uniform. I remember walking up and I'm like, do you know about that band? It's like, yeah, we're not, you know, it was all back then. It was the only way we heard about music was through skateboard videos and stuff like that. And so we connected. And um, then, you know, just did tape swaps back and forth. And then it was the whole thing of you, you play music, I play music. And I didn't realise, you know, it was really funny. I, I gave Paul a Bad Religion record uh, tape. The next day he came to school and was like, I can play the whole thing. And he sat there and played through every, at lunchtime he played through every single Bad Religion song. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and, then, um, and then a battle of the bands popped up at school and he was like, do you want to, you know, start a band and do some covers? So we did... Yeah, we did a bunch of covers, punk rock covers or whatever, and we came last in the in the Battle of the Bands competition. But it was funny. It's, it started, you know, I used to play drums, but I never thought I'd take it seriously. And Paul, obviously, ever since he was born, wanted to be in a band and wanted to make that his lifelong um, career, whereas I was just like, oh, you know, I'd play drums for the hell of it. So, obviously, straight up after we did that, you know, when school finished, you know, he'd written a bunch of songs and asked if I wanted to come up and play drums. He moved straight up to town and wanted to play drums, so started doing it, and that's how the band started. But I, I never went into it with any sort of idea of making a 
career out of it. I just did it because that's just what you do. And um, yeah, turns out I sat next to the right guy in school, you know. And that guy he sat next to, Paul, already had ambitions to become a musician and had no intention of sitting around waiting for things to happen. For a start, they were too far from the action down on the peninsula and, as the singer explains, that was one hurdle easily solved. Clint and I had already played in a couple of, you know, bands together during high school. Uh, but, uh, you know, as soon as high school was over, I, you know, I, I was really ready to kind of get serious and actually, like, form a, a real band and, and play, you know, real gigs in, you know, in pubs and, and clubs and stuff instead of, you know, playing at your high school you know, social or whatever. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, I, I moved from the Mornington Peninsula kind of straight up to the city um, while, whilst I was actually still finishing high school um, and immediately just started trying to find, uh, you know, people to, to start a band with. And uh, we played our first gig, yeah, the year, you know, less than a year after high school finished, so... Clint remembers that after he joined his mate in town, things started happening at a rate of knots. Yeah, it was pretty much six to eight months. Like we and we got and Paul had a bunch of songs written and we it all happened really quickly for us because we started rehearsals, we wrote all these songs, we a few demo songs, we recorded it, and nine months later we were signed to Sony. Like it was like we'd only played we played a handful of shows, but it all happened really quickly. Like we still played two or three times a week. But it happened, the whole thing happened really quickly. Um, yeah, Paul, I think Paul was still 19 when we put out our first EP. So I'm six months older than him. So, yeah, it all happened super quick. Something for Kate's lineup was rounded out by bassist Julian Carroll and they played their first gig at the Punters Club in September 1994 under the name Fish of the Day, quickly changing that to a name inspired by Paul's family dog at the time, Kate. Musically, they were still pretty abrasive, but they found a following really quickly. This was the glory days of DIY, where cool record shops would stock all manner of local tapes and zines, and Paul recalls that it wasn't long before the band made the demo tape, which would find the labels knocking at their door. We played our first gig in, like, September 94, and at the end of 94, we recorded that demo, um... And we started kind of like just, uh, you know, doing cassettes, dubbing off cassettes for friends and, and for like venues, booking agents and stuff to try and get gigs. And um, and then it sort of seemed like, oh, you know, Julian, our bass player, our first bass player, he, he found this place that would, you know, you could get 50 cassettes done for <laughs> whatever. So we started doing that. And then we had to do another 50 and another 50. And, you know, it got to the point where we'd sold like, I don't know, 500 of these cassettes or something. I think that Chris Dunn, who was uh, A&R for the Murmur label and Sony Music at the time, he he used to go into Orgogo Records in Melbourne all the time, which was, you know, which was one of the great legendary kind of alternative indie record stores in Melbourne. And he used to go in there to buy all his records. And I think he saw the Something for Kate demo sitting on the counter and he asked uh, Pat, Monaghan, who, you know, worked at Orgogo at the time and, and still, you know, runs record stores in Melbourne now and kind of said, oh, what's the, who's this band? What's the deal with this? And, and uh, Pat sort of said to him that Orgogo had been 
selling like hundreds of them. And the next thing is our phone rang. So the man on the other end of the phone, John O'Donnell, founder and head of Sony Music Imprint Murmur Records, the formation of which you can hear John discuss in depth on the very first season of Rewind, where we looked at the rise and rise of Silverchair's debut album Frogstomp, which had been released in 1995 and really put Murmur on the map. These days John is CEO of EMI and co-managers Cold Chisel, and he also spoke to us in the Trifford Rewind under his guise of fan and co-author of the book 100 Best Australian Albums. John explains that while he loved something of a cape from the get-go, having been given the demo tape by his A&R guy, Chris Dunn, he knew that due to their relative youth and experience, that this was a long-term project, one where trust and patience from the label was going to be key. Yeah, I think it was really early. And yeah, it was totally Chris um, who lit that fire. Um, And of course, he went on to manage something for Kate for a little while. He was amazing and he was so important to the something for Kate story, but um, he had drifted out of the picture um, by the time Ekalalia was being made um, and even a bit before that. But anyway, he's, he's still well loved by the band. But for us at Murma, um, something for Kate were the kind of runt of the litter in some ways, um, you know, in terms of the poptastic nature of Silverchair and um, Ammonia and, and, you know, artists like that, something for Kate with, with the band that, you know, we always knew had greatness in them and, and right from the start had that in them. But, um, you know, they took a, a while to, I guess, reveal it in a commercial sense. But it was our feeling and my feeling that, you know, that they were just going to, they had, despite their math rock beginnings, and they were a fairly brutal band on those first singles and EPs into the first album elsewhere for eight minutes, they were pretty brutal sounding um, and they wanted to be, but Paul in particular, but all of the band loved all the greats. I mean, they were massive REM fans um, and you could, I just knew that those influences and their sense of ambition were all going to produce great things, that they were going to go on that great songwriting journey and recording journey that great artists go on where they make important early records, but they just get better and they get better and they get better. And something for Kate are definitely one of those bands. Um, and, you know, you cannot sign bands like Silverchair who explode so early and keep that going, but they exploded so early. I knew that we had to have artists that we believed in for the long haul and Something for Kate were definitely that example. So the first official Something for Kate release came in May 1996 in the form of the seven-track EP The Answer to Both Your Questions which was produced by Greg Atkinson of wonderful 80s Brisbane band Ups and Downs and the equally great Sydney outfit Big Heavy Stuff, after which Something for Kate did a national uni tour alongside label mates Jebediah and Blue Bottle Kiss. But it was the standalone single from later that same year, Dean Martin, which really started getting some serious radio traction.
track collection of odds and ends intermission came out in march 1997 but by this time Sanctificated had already headed over to new zealand and recorded their debut album elsewhere for eight minutes in auckland with producer brian paulson best known at that time for working with american bands like wilco slint and sonvol the first single from that album captain million miles an hour came out in may 1997 quickly upping the ante again and becoming omnipresent on radio, even rising to number 39 on Triple J's Hottest 100 for 97. too blown away by how well things were going simply because they've been moving at this pace since the band started my great aspiration out of high school was to start a band and play a real gig you know <laughs> and once that happened it was like oh well, maybe we'll play another gig and i don't know I, you know at that point in time you, you're really just thinking from one gig to the next gig every gig you get is like a huge win and you're just so excited about the opportunity to play in front of people again and and I don't think we'd really thought much further than that. And then suddenly, you know, people were talking to us about record deals and I, we couldn't quite believe it. Um, and, you know, I, I, yeah, we just sort of took each step slowly and carefully. Um, I think we were, I think one of the real lucky things for our, our band is that, you know, growing up, our influences were, you know, bands like, Fugazi and, and Sonic Youth and Black Flag and, you know, punk bands who really kind of did everything themselves and, and really maintained a lot of control of everything. And even at the same time, a band like R.E.M., who, you know, they were a massive global success and, and a major label band, but they had come from a sort of 
indie background where they had really uh, dictated their own way of doing things and, and they'd, they'd managed to make that work in a major label world as well. So I think we were just lucky that we had all these great influences and, and bands that we looked up to and learned from. So, you know, when we did start talking to labels, we were still very cautious and we didn't, you know, we never allowed ourselves to get carried away and think, oh my God, you know, this is our ticket. We're going to be, you know, the next big thing or whatever, because I mean, we just never imagined that happening anyway, just because of the kind of band we are. Elsewhere for eight minutes, while well received, didn't make the ARIA charts, although it would eventually achieve gold accreditation. But things were shaking up behind the scenes. Bassist Julian Carroll would leave the band not long after the recording sessions for the album, he'd just gotten married and was moving to the country, replaced for about a year by Toby Ralph, but that just didn't really work out, and it's at this stage that Stephanie Ashworth enters the picture. Up until now, Stephanie has been bassist for another excellent 90s Melbourne indie rock trio, Sandpit. She'd been sounded out briefly when Cara left, but had been too busy with that other band, but by the time Ralph was leaving, things had changed. And in January 1998, having been asked again, this time she agreed and the classic Something for Kate lineup was born. I was in both bands for a while there at the same time. And um, yeah, we toured together. And, um, you know, we were both really busy. And, um, but, you know, you can't sustain both, both projects. I couldn't sustain both projects, really. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it was sort of... Um, a matter of uh, evolution and um, yeah we, we, we sort of managed to work schedules out for a time um, and then it just it just got too much I just couldn't I couldn't maintain it any longer um, uh, but yeah I have I have really good memories of um, of that time and uh, of of Sam Pitt. Sam Pitt had sadly split before the May 1998 release of their wonderful debut album on Second Thought which came out on the indie label Fellaheen. Here's a taste of that album's opening track, Along the Moors. I'm a wizard I'm a cowering fool I'm a failure I'm the one that just can't get out This mindset causes Sandpit's demise, while undoubtedly awful, allowed Stephanie to focus on something for Kate, which, as she explains, was exciting for her as a fan as well as a musician. Clint and Paul were best friends, and um, I guess I was the the newcomer. And um, but I, I already knew them from you know touring together already, um, and um, I was already you know a really big fan of the. EPs and the album, the uh, of Elsewhere for Eight Minutes, and um, 
I was really excited, I guess, at the idea of getting to play those songs because, you know, sometimes something holds even more mystique for you if you weren't a part of the writing process. So um, to get to play those songs and sort of unlock how those songs worked, all the instruments, how they worked together was really um, kind of intriguing to me um, and exciting and really kind of educational about, you know, it's always educational to, to play someone else's songs. Um, but to get in, in depth on those songs um, was was uh, was really fascinating and um, I was really excited to get to play them. I felt like it was it was an honour. The new trio's chemistry gels quickly. Paul spends a month in Dublin finding his family roots, in the process providing the lyrical fodder for what would become something for Kate's second album, Beautiful Sharks, which this time they record in Toronto, again with Brian Paulson. That album's lead single, Electricity, would be something for Kate's first foray into the Australian Top 40, just sneaking in at number 39, but earning a lot of well-deserved traction. Clint explains that while musically things were going great guns, the shift to the new something for Kate three-piece hadn't come without its share of backlash and it taken a while to become accustomed to. It was kind of weird because when Steph joined, obviously there was, a, in the whole indie rock scene, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of banter back and forth, you know, bitchiness and all that sort of stuff that used to happen on chat groups back then. So we knew where we were going, but it was kind of hard because Steph joined the band and she came from obviously Sandpit, who were quite the indie rock royalty band so it was a really weird period back then because I remember and Paul wasn't the happiest person back then let's be honest like he was fine with me but he you know <laughs> he was, he was he, I was always pretty happy go lucky with everything but you know he um he definitely wore his heart on his sleeve and took a lot of that to heart a lot of the stuff that was said about him and and so on so it was a really weird process when we did that record and just the way yeah the way it was received was um we weren't on any trajectory to go anywhere. We didn't plan to, you know, become, we just wanted to make records that sounded clear. We always had this joke, I think, you know, with indie rock bands, like, you'd, you know, you'd almost not record it. Like we wanted to record stuff really well so you could hear every instrument. Whereas, you know, a lot of those old records, I don't know how they were, you know, they'd record them. You just couldn't hear them. It sounded like they were on AM radio, some of them, you know, but that was the charm of their records. But we just wanted to make great sounding records. The band's sound was not changing, I mean, just developing and evolving quite significantly with each release, wasn't it, in those early days? Yeah, it did. It definitely did. Like, it was obviously a lot harder and heavier earlier on. And then, mm. you know, Beautiful Sharks, it started to mellow out a little bit. But we still had, the, like, I think the the live shows and the way we, we attacked our instruments was still with sort of that, 
fear sets that we did on the first EPs and the first record. Um, and it never the intensity never waned. But I think some people, the way it got perceived, I think was that it became a lot more polished. I think we just got better at writing songs and better at um, sort of knowing not to drag something on too long. Um, like a lot of the songs early, obviously, were quite long songs. And we just got better at crafting, just got better at our craft, I felt. Um, but still, you know, like I said, I still, I still think Paul and myself, we all play as hard as we did back in the day, but the, you know, the songwriting has just become a little bit more refined. Beautiful Sharks came out in June 1999, again to great reviews, and would earn something for Kate an ARIA nomination for Best Alternative Release, losing out to Not From Theirs, Sound On 7. Even more excitingly though, it went to number 10 on the ARIA album chart. The perfect progression, you'd imagine, for all concerned. Stephanie remembers that things definitely seemed to be heading in the right direction. I mean, we were very committed. Um, you know, we were very serious and very committed and uh, it's, it was our lives. It was 100% of our, our lives and um, we were very passionate and, um, you know, you're in your early 20s or 20 or something. <laughs> and, you know, it's, um, it's it, you know, it's, um, it's 100% of your focus and um, all, all we did was tour and write and tour and write and rehearse and that's, that was it. There was nothing else to our, you know, pretty much seemed like that anyway. After Beautiful Sharks release, something for Kate embarked on the huge P2K tour alongside Powderfinger and then in the early months of 2000, embarked on their first overseas foray, touring through America and Japan. And it was during the US leg of this tour that the Echolalia story was very nearly knocked on the head before it had even started, when the band's newest member Stephanie was almost headhunted by another band, the US Courtney Love-led Behemoth Hole, whose guitarist Eric Erlanson had caught her playing at a something for Kate gig in LA and evidently liked what he'd seen. We were just, you know, we were just on tour. Um, we were playing a show in Los Angeles at the Whiskey. And, um, yeah, I mean, we were at that, we were, it had been a long tour. We'd been in Europe and Japan, or I, I can't even remember. We It was at the end of a really long tour. And then, yeah, we were sort of almost kind of getting really mentally ready to leave and go home. And then, yeah, the guys had come to the sh- to our show um, at the Whiskey. And, uh, and, yeah, our manager went to the record company the next day and they asked to have a meeting with her, I think, and um, asked me if, if I would... Um, yeah, consider joining the band. Um, but, you know, at the time I was just, we'd been away a lot and, you know, I was I would have to um, relocate to the States at that point. And, you know, I was, I was very happy in something for Kate and um, I wasn't ready to, um, to leave. Um, it didn't feel like what I wanted to do at the time. It was really flattering and really, really nice to be asked. It's always nice to be asked to play with people. But, yeah, it just kind of wasn't really where my head was at at the time, I think. I guess it's just where you're at in your life and, and what you, whether, you know, it, I was happy doing what I was doing and, I you know, I didn't, I guess that just wasn't, wasn't the right thing at the right time for me. Back in Australia, something for Kate had a new ally at Sony's Melbourne office in the shape of former music journalist Craig Matheson who alongside John O'Donnell and Toby Creswell is also one of the co-authors of the 2011 book 100 Best Australian Albums. 
He'd just been recruited into the A&R world and would become both a close friend and staunch supporter of something for Kate down the track, even panning some of the liner notes for their 2007 compilation, The Murmur Years, the best of something for Kate. My personal circumstances were that I got to about 1999 and I'd been writing for about nonstop for like 10 years. End of my 20s, I'd finished, pretty much finished my second book, The Sell-In, and just for a variety of reasons, I was absolutely burnt out. Um, uh, I was sort of done with living in Sydney and my friend John O'Donnell, who'd been my editor previously, and sort of we'd collaborated in various ways and worked together and had all kinds of relationships. He just said, well, you know, there's a job in Melbourne where, where I'd studied and I was from Victoria. He said, do you want to try A&R, you know, which was a really interesting path because, you know, John had gone from journalism. Everyone named John had gone from journalism to, you know, the, the other side of the industry, John O'Donnell, John Watson, people, you know, were a few years ahead of me and uh, I looked up to and I learned from. And it just seemed I needed a change. So, yes, I, I became an A&R person um, at the Melbourne office of Sony Music. And, of course, the most important act in Melbourne, as far as I was concerned, I'm sure many people, was something for Kate. I'd heard them across Triple J and I'd, I'd started getting sent the records and seen them at festivals. I wrote a feature for Rolling Stone Australia uh, when the second album came out, which is when I just met them individually. I spent a day in Melbourne, you know, saw them play at the Prince of Wales. We did some interviews. Um, so I was familiar with them. You know, you couldn't help but notice the trajectory of the music you you couldn't, you know, for me, I thought Electricity was just a phenomenal track. Like it seemed to speak in really deep ways to what Paul was trying to say as a songwriter. And it sounded different in several crucial ways to what, what else was coming out of Australia at the time. So the idea that that, that artist to just even mix with them a little and watch them at work as they made this sort of third record and, and as a believer in third albums being key albums in careers I just thought wow that's what what a great opportunity I don't think I did much but it was very nice to be up close as it happened so by now everyone's minds are turning towards what will in time become the third something for Kate album Echolalia the band's sound was evolving slowly but dramatically Beautiful Sharks was a sizable departure from their more raucous early fare but in Paul's mind it was all just a natural progression for the band's aesthetic it was really just organic. Um, you know, we, we never wanted to do the same thing over and over or repeat ourselves. We're, you know, we, we've always tried to, you know, have an evolution in the sound. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of that also just has to do with the, the changing lineup. Um, you know, when we started out, we were, you know, three teenagers really just making a very abrasive angry racket and then you know by the time Steph joined the band you know we played a lot of gigs and we'd made a couple of EPs and a record and you know so we were ready I think at that point to start exploring different moods and atmospheres and and stuff so by the time Steph joined the band you know I think we were ready for an evolution and you know her influence obviously changed the the chemistry within the band and and you know 
in your, when you're young as well, you know, between like age 18 when the band started and age, you know, 22 or whatever when we made our second album, I mean, think about those four years in anyone's life between 18 and 22. You taste in music and everything is like, it's a roller coaster. You're constantly discovering new things really rapidly and, you know, you, you, you're learning so much and you're hearing so much and you're just getting excited about so much that, you know, you, what your creative output as well, I think, is so um, changeable and erratic in that, you know, just in that age, I think, just, just by virtue of being that, that age, you know. And then also when, you know, when you're still a young band, you just, you're so prolific and you're just churning stuff out and there's very little filter. You know, you think that everything you're doing is, is fantastic. <laughs> you know, you just, you're just creating, creating, creating all the time. It's not really until you sort of get a little bit older and you've done it a few times, I think, that you start to actually really have much more of a strict filter and, a, and more of a quality control where you start to go, well, hang on, like, is this the best we can do? Or, you know, is this really worthy? But at this stage, things have been progressing both creatively and commercially. Their second album had just cracked the top 10. And Paul remembers being completely confident as he stepped up to the plate. I mean, like, really, we had already um, achieved so much more than we dared hope when we started. Um, Things were going great. You know, Beautiful Sharks was... Um, you know, it had done even better again than our first album and our shows were getting bigger and and we were touring more often and we toured overseas for the first time on Beautiful Sharks. So, yeah, by the time we were ready, you know, starting to make Echolalia, we were, you know, definitely, you know, just wanted to put our best foot forward again and make a better record than Beautiful Sharks. But also, you know, we wanted to make a different record as well. So, um but yeah, you know, we definitely felt like we had a lot of momentum and, you know, and that we had developed a very loyal audience that was, you know, that was excited to hear another record from us. So something indicated poised to tackle album number three, Echolalia. They found the perfect lineup with an excellent chemistry. Their growing fan base is evolving with them as their sound mellows and settles. And in Murmur, they have a label that believes in them and has their backs allowing them all of the benefits of a major label deal without the usual commercial pressures. There's only one problem. This time, for the first time, the songs have dried up. The band is sitting in their rehearsal room, supposed to be writing album number three, but nothing is coming for months and months and months. Here's Paul. Again, you know, after having two albums out and touring a whole lot, you know, we, we suddenly had the luxury of having this um, kind of full-time rehearsal space that we could go down to every day. So we would meet there every day and, and just spend, you know, five, six hours a whole the whole sort of afternoon and evening just uh, throwing ideas around. And as I've just said, you know, I would come in with ideas and then the three of us would have this... Uh, back and forth about it all but it, I don't know it just there just wasn't a lot of stuff that felt like it was really clicking and I think I also I just wasn't um, I, I think I just started to be crippled by a bit of self-doubt um, which at the time 
you know, I thought writer's block, that's what everyone says it is. That's what the culture tells you it is. You know, um, if you're lacking inspiration or things aren't coming easily, it must be writer's block. And, um, and so, you know, I really kind of let that, uh, I let that infiltrate my thinking. And so the, the kind of self-doubt just got worse. And, and, you know, look, I'm, I'm a hyper-analytical person anyway, and I think I was just scrutinizing everything so much that I wasn't letting anything get through, you know. I was just, um, you know, largely doing it to myself. Um, but, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a super fun time for the three of us. And, you know, we'd go to rehearsal and a lot of times it would just be pretty tense. Um, and we weren't really sure how to, Breakthrough. So we'll leave episode one of the Echolalia podcast there with the band hold up, frustrated, waiting for inspiration to strike. We know that the songs will start flowing somehow, but it's why and where, which makes episode two worth checking out and things only hot up from there. We'll say farewell for now with the fourth single from Beautiful Sharks, The Astronaut, something for Kate's final release before the eventual birth of Echolalia.
Thanks heaps to our network partner, Yamaha Headphones. And thank you so much for joining us on this rewind. Please make sure you check out the rest of the episodes because as well as being an amazing album, the Echolalia story is a cracker. We'll catch you then. Rewind with Steve Bell is a podcast from the Handshake Agency Network. Produced by Craig Treweek and Andrew Musk. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dollar Bar.